Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 239th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Ryan Freilich. Ryan is the founder of Deliberate Finances, an RIA located in New Orleans, Louisiana, that serves young professionals using a monthly subscription fee model. What's unique about Ryan, though, is that he's intentionally built his advisory business in such a way that allows him to help people in their 20s, 30s, and 40s navigate the inevitable financial complexities in their lives, regardless of whether or not they have liquid assets that need managing. In this episode, we talk in depth about Ryan's experience that while the industry typically assumes clients with limited assets have limited financial complexity, in practice, it's often the journey of getting to the point of having assets to manage that is the most complex part of the journey. While Ryan finds that the tendency of financial advisors to not specialize, unlike other professionals like doctors who use titles to differentiate among specialties, makes it challenging for consumers to find the right advisor to help with their particular pain points. And how Ryan has structured his subscription model with a varying price range specifically to align to the specialized and complex needs of his younger clientele as their own careers evolve and their income grows. We also talk about Ryan's commitment to remaining a solo advisor and how that makes focusing on making sure he is serving only his ideal client all the more important to the success of the business. The third-party services that Ryan refers clients out to for their estate planning, insurance, and even investment needs to ultimately allow Ryan to maximize the time he spends in the planning areas where he adds the most value, and why Ryan has implemented surge meetings in order to achieve the sort of work-life balance that's most important to him and his family. And be certain to listen to the end, where Ryan shares why he provides a client engagement standard in his onboarding process as a way to set clear expectations around both his and his client's relationship responsibilities, especially given his lifestyle practice. The expertise that Ryan has developed around student loan planning as a way to differentiate himself even further. And why Ryan's background as a teacher coming into the financial planning business has allowed him to eschew the industry's traditional definitions of success and create his own business goals to maximize his financial and family well-being. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Ryan Freilich. Welcome, Ryan Freilich, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you so much. I am excited and humbled to, to be here. I really appreciate you joining us for the for the podcast today. You you had done a an article actually for for Nerd's Eye View for the blog last year, talking about your advisory model that that got a lot of interest. And I thought a lot of good discussion going. That you know our industry, I think, just historically has spent so much time kind of built and revolving around insurance and investments. Seems like these days, particularly investments, as the as the AUM model just gets increasingly popular and there is this sort of other side of the world, not only like we have the asset side of the balance sheet, we have the debt side of the balance sheet. We have baby boomers who are increasingly focused on the assets because they've accumulated their dollars for retirement. And you've got you know a generation of folks in their 20s, 30s, and 40s who are really still focused on the debt side because student loan debt is absolutely enormous. You know, I think a lot of people don't realize like total student loan debt in the country is double all credit card debt in the aggregate. And student loan debt is mostly people in their 20s and 30s and a little bit in their 40s. And credit cards is everybody across the age spectrum. So like twice the debt, half the people. So like Mm -hmm. really magnified. And you have built this 
business model, this advisory firm around like, what does it look like when we're working with clients whose primary issue is, in essence, is not asset management, is debt management, is dealing with big student loans. I think for so many advisors is just like, there's two types of people, clients who have a lot of money and complex needs and people who don't have a significant portfolio and therefore don't have a lot of complexity in their lives. And I feel like you sort of live the epitome of the like, yeah, try talking to an early 30s. It's like someone in their early 30s who's getting their career going, trying to make good money, starting a family, buying a house, having kids, five or six figure student loan debt and everything else that's coming at them. And like you could ask them about their financial lives. And I'm betting the one thing they're not going to say is that it's simple. Yeah. Complexity without high assets is a thing that many people are facing. And I think we we all too often equate the two is like, well, if you have a lot to manage, your financial life is complex. And sometimes like getting yourself to a place where you will someday have a lot to manage is actually the more complex point in the journey. Yeah, I, I think it's a good way to to frame it. And yes, you know, there are well, even just to make the point, like our industry store has this assumption that if you have a lot to manage, your life must be complex. And I do think there is some validity to that, if only because if that totally wasn't valid, frankly, the AUM model would blow up. Like if they really didn't find greater value with their greater net worth and complexity, they wouldn't pay the fee. Like people are not idiots. At some point, if that many people are doing it, assets are at least at least a decent enough proxy for complexity that the model hasn't broken. And in fact, it's doing quite well and growing a lot and a lot of people are going there. But we have, I think, taken it very much to the probably problematic extreme, as I, as I think your advisory firm demonstrates, which is this presumption that if people don't have a pile of assets, their lives must not be financially complex and couldn't possibly need financial advice for which they would pay, which just doesn't actually hold in reality. Yeah, not at all. I mean, I, I think... Like there's certainly a correlation there of, you know, with, with increasing assets, there can be increasing complexity, but there's also kind of what you described there is typical of a lot of my client households, which is they're, they're managing so many different things and they have a major change every three or four months. You know, I'm thinking of a couple right now that I've been working with for, I mean, I guess it's close to three years now, but in that three years, they've literally both changed jobs. One was self-employed for a while. They've had a kid, they've bought a car, they've paid off their student loan debt. They're they've bought a house, they're renovating that house, and baby number two is now on the way. And they got married at the beginning of all that sequence there. That is in the last less than 36 months. And so every single one of those things I mentioned comes with you know, changes to their financial life, to, to you know, what's coming in, what's going out, and what are our obligations, and how do we want to do this as a couple now, and how is that different than how we did it when we were you know, living together but not married? How does it change when we introduce kids to the picture? How does it change in, in that couple's case now that their student loans are gone? And so it's just you know, there's so many moving pieces to people when they're in that stretch of life. And it's also, frankly, it's where I am in my life. You know, I'm 35 and we have a four-year-old and a one-year-old. And so I've been personally going through a lot of those same transitions over the same period of time. And so I think that's, it's helpful in terms of empathy for me to be able to look at clients and say like, I get it. No, like really and truly, I get it. I am, I am right there with you in so many ways. And I think that helps people who, you know, maybe haven't, been heard when they've reached out to advisors at points in the past. I definitely have a lot of people who will share a story of, you know, my my dad's guy at Wells Fargo will talk to me now and again about my IRA. But what I really want to talk about is X. And we, we've never had that conversation, right? They're right. sort of writing the coattails 
of an advisor who you know works with someone else in their family who has a portfolio to manage. But they're you know because that advisor does something different and has a different business model and a different like subject matter expertise for different types of clients. You know they might share the same title, financial planner, but like that's not they're no more similar than like a cardiologist and a pediatrician. Yes, they're both doctors, but like what their knowledge and expertise is and what my knowledge and expertise is has like not that much overlap when you really get down to it. Like, you know, we, we, we both know a lot about money compared to the random person on the street, but I don't think I should be in charge of, you know, what their expertise is for their clients. And they probably shouldn't be advising on some of the issues that my clients are facing. And I think, you know, we can, we, we would all do a better job of just acknowledging like, who do we serve and what types of clients do we serve that we can really do a good job with? Because just because you have the title financial planner doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be great at advising young couples with student loan debt. Well, I, I love even how you frame it of there can be as much difference between two financial advisors as there is between a, a cardiologist and a pediatrician. And I think, frankly, part of the challenge we create for ourselves is like doctors figure that out a long time ago. That's why they don't just all call themselves doctors. They have labels like cardiologist and pediatrician. Mm -hmm. And we still call everyone a financial advisor across the spectrum. And I think perhaps even amplify that problem unto ourselves where even consumers can't tell us apart and figure out which is which and what's what and who's who and who focuses where because we just have no we we have no labels like we we're not sorting ourselves so they can't sort through us either and i think just amplifies kind of the the matching challenge of consumers looking for advice and often just struggle to find an advisor who will give them advice on the thing that they're looking for advice on definitely and i think you know in my I just chose two random specialties that popped into my mind, but I think it's, it's, it's quick for people to say like, well, obviously you don't want the pediatrician, you know, doing heart surgery. But I also think it's obvious that I don't want the cardiologist like working with my four-year-old, right. Yep. And figuring out what's going on with them because there's an area, there's not just the hard skills of like, you know, what it takes to be a pediatrician medically with a, you know, a, a child, but also like the soft skills of working with a child are different than performing heart surgery. I know nothing about cardiology, so I should probably stop this analogy, but right. They're vastly different skill sets. And it's not necessarily just like one could do both jobs and the other one couldn't do the other one's job. Like there's, there's some in both. And I think I have been surprised at the number of clients that I have who come to me who say, you know, I've tried working with an advisor my family works with and it doesn't work. And, you know, that's been to my advantage. So for my business, that has been a benefit. But I also think it's something I would hope that advisors grow increasingly aware of that, like, you know, if you are not set up to deal with the financial challenges that young people face today, then it's okay. It's just be a, be willing and able to outsource that or train someone on your team who can become the person who can do those things. Because I know I'm not the only one who hears that. I've talked to plenty of other advisors who serve, you know, clients similar to me who say, yeah, that happens all the time that, you know, someone comes to me because they could not work with the, the, you know, the person that their family works with actually isn't able to help them or isn't interested in helping them. And that's a pretty common story. So then help us understand like what is your advisory firm? I mean, what, what, what do you do and who do you do it for? Like we've talked about how there's serving clients different than traditional AUM clients with models that are different than traditional AUM. So paint the picture for us of just your advisory firm. What, what do you do and who do you serve? So my firm is Deliberate Finances and I'm a solo RIA based here in New Orleans. And I work currently with 48 clients, both single and, and, and couples. And work primarily with people in their 20s, 30s, and 40s. About 90% of my clients are under age 50. And I help them a lot with everything that you know you just mentioned, right? So everything that has a dollar sign on it, something we can talk about. So you're managing all those complex transitions of being a young person. 
you know, I'd say like a, a typical client household might be a couple in their late thirties with, you know, two or three kids, they're managing student loan debt, they're buying a house, they're seeing a rise in income. I particularly work with a lot of people who maybe didn't enter their field because of its being lucrative and have ended up making a lot more money than maybe their, their younger self may have thought of. So thinking of people who maybe, you know, started off as a teacher and I work with a lot of people who used to be teachers and some who are currently teachers who then became a principal and is now, you know, a CEO of a nonprofit, right? And so they've seen this huge mm. upwards rise in their income and complexity, but they didn't, you know, they didn't set out on a path to make the $200,000 a year salary that they're now making. It sort of happened a little bit more organically without them, you know, making a decision in their early 20s of like, what's a lucrative path so that by the time I'm 40, I'm making, you know, a top 5% national income. Well, and and I know particularly just when you work with clients who spent their early careers in much more limited income situations, particularly if they went into professions where they knew there wasn't necessarily mm -hmm. a, a really high income upside. There's actually a lot of struggle and discomfort and uncertainty that comes when they start hitting the, mm -hmm. like, I never thought there would be this much money moving around my household. And like, yep. I don't know what to do. I recognize this is a lot of money. I really don't want to screw this up. And, and I'm just like, I'm really not sure what to do here. Like, <laughs> there's a lot of money. Like, help, help me. What do I? Yeah. What do I do? Yeah. I mean, I've I've had people reach out and and you know a beginning of a client relationship be that they just got a raise of say I don't know forty thousand dollars and like that's more than their their annual income was seven or eight years ago. Right. And they're just going like I don't know how to how how to begin to manage this. You know, and I work. You know, as you alluded to earlier, I work on a monthly retainer basis, so subscription fee basis, you know, sort of the XYPN model for those are, who are familiar with it. You know, I have subscription fees that are, you know, across a range based sort of on, on income and net worth and complexity. So, you know, those who have higher income and net worth and some more complexity in their life pay a higher fee. It might be, you know, four to $6,000 a year. And then, then there are also folks, you know, my minimum fee at this point is $1,800 a year. So it might be a more simple circumstances, more limited income or net worth. And so they're, they're paying a lower fee. And so it's just done on a, on a monthly basis. And then I, I will help certainly with investment. That is certainly a part of this puzzle, but I don't charge on assets under management just because a, for a lot of people, you know, it's not, they haven't built up a large assets under management. So it wouldn't be a, a profitable model, but also I was really just when I when I started the firm wanting to try to set up in a way that was as as free of conflicts as possible. I don't think there's a perfectly conflict-free way to do it, but I I wanted to be set up in a way where if it makes more sense to keep it in your 401k, then you keep it in your 401k. If it makes more sense to maybe move an IRA into a 401k to open up a backdoor Roth opportunity, like I can give that advice without it impacting my bottom line because I'm, you know, not not tied to the assets that that I might help manage. So help me understand a little bit more about just how fees get set. So I heard $1,800 a year, I think at the lower end, which is essentially 150 bucks a month, several hundred dollars a month at the higher end. So just how do you actually figure out like who, who's paying for what, where they end out on, on this range of monthly fees? Sure. Yeah. So, so this has been an evolution, I will say. So my firm technically was, I think, approved in December of 2016. And I first had a client in January of 2017. And at that point, the, you know, the highest end of my fee structure was $1,800 a year, $150 a month. And I can distinctly remember the first time I, I got an email back from someone saying, yes, well, we're, you know, we're on board for that service. And I like ran out of my then home office and like elated to my wife saying like, oh my gosh, someone is about to pay me $150 a month to give them financial advice. 
then fast forward, here we are four years later, and that is the, the bottom end of my fee spectrum. Through about 6,000 is about the cap, right? The highest I'll go is, is, is 6,000, just because I do think there is a, a certain point where there is not necessarily a need to continue going higher. If there's a client that I frankly think necessitates a fee higher than that, I will refer them out just because they'll probably have enough stuff that's different going on than most of the rest of who I work with that it's probably not the right client for me anyway if they necessitate a fee beyond $6,000 a year. Meaning at that point, just they're going to have a level of complexity that is like too much focused on one client, even if it's a good fee, like this isn't going to be cost effective to serve because they're going to need too many different things than everyone else. Yeah. And I think in particular, I think it's important to say this early on, like I'm a solo firm and I intend to stay that way. So I am not intending to add advisors or employees, you know, if anything could change. But but right now I really plan to keep a small firm. I don't have staff. I may at some point add like a virtual assistant for a few hours a week, but I don't feel, you know, for me, I'm not building a firm that's going to be a large firm. And so having one client that has a totally other set of needs and has a completely different financial life and like set of expertise that's necessary when you're building a really small firm just doesn't really make sense to me. It's not always right. easy. And certainly it's easier now when I have a base of clients than it was, you know, three years ago to say, you know what, you seem like a great person for X other advisor to work with, because I know that they, a can can serve you really well and B like aren't going, you know, you may be a big free for me, but if you're taking 30% of my working hours because I'm having to build entirely new systems and structures and workflows and technology that I don't currently use, then like it wasn't worth it. Well, it's just it's a good powerful point that if you're building a solo practice that you consciously intend to keep as a solo practice, like you are only ever going to have so many clients. Like just the, the numbers limited because the, the time and hours are limited. And so exactly how many are you going to let onto the onto the bus as it were before the bus runs out of room really 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 matters and not just who is nice to serve and pays you a good fee but like who can you serve efficiently because their needs are similar to your other clients which means your expertise is more repeatable and what you do with them that that stuff suddenly really starts to matter in not overburdening your capacity yeah and i mean you know while i haven't fully gone into like a really specific niche as some some advisors have you know i know there's someone who like only works with chick-fil-a franchise owners and some other really specific things out there you know i generally am working with you know w2 professionals for the most part who work in who earn a what i would call like a really good but not necessarily like overwhelmingly great income like i guess a better way to say this is you know i work with a lot of people who earn in between you know the 70th and 90th percentile of income in america but i'm not working with a ton of people who make seven eight nine hundred thousand dollars a year you know most of my clients i would say fall between 150 and three hundred thousand dollars a year of total household income with a few higher than that and a few lower than that and so that does narrow the scope of planning issues that you're working on right because just the way taxes work you know there's rules that i don't need to worry about because i don't have clients that they pertain that you know it pertains to them yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's the business. It's me and my dog Dodger sitting over here on the couch and my currently 48 clients. And to your point, you know, I think, I think 60 is probably the number that I'd ever top. I was going to say, where do, where do you top out? Tops out around 60 for you? I think 60. For me, flexibility and time is really, really important. I have done the thing where I work 50, 60 hour work weeks. I spent a lot of my twenties doing that and I don't intend to return to it. And so I want, you know, I will be very, very cautious in growing the firm beyond the point that I feel like I can manage it in not just 40 hours a week, but 40 hours a week at some points of the year and a lot less than 40 hours a week for all big chunks of the year. You know, we're recording this uh, a few weeks after actually you, you emailed me about an invitation to do this because I spent three weeks offline with my family in the national parks recently. And that's something I want to make sure we can do every year 
And I think I would, I just want to be really cognizant that, that if I'm going to stay solo, that I probably have a, a lower overall cap of clients that I can work with while also preserving the flexibility. You know, I could certainly serve a hundred clients if I was willing to be at my desk 50 hours a week, 50 weeks a year, but I'm not willing to do that. And so within just this 150 to 500 a month range, like how do you set people within that range? Like just who, what's a 150 a month client versus a 300 month a client versus a, a 500 a month client? Is that like a, just your subjective evaluation of what it's going to take to serve them based on a, an introductory meeting? Or is that a, like a formula thing or a, you know, service tiers complexity thing? Like just how do you actually set people within the range? So I, I start with a, you know, the income net worth calculation that I think a lot of people will use, you know, a 1% of income, half a percent of net worth sort of rough guideline. And I will then adjust from there based on some, you know, maybe more subjective measures that someone might say for complexity. So, you know, at the, at the lower end of that fee spectrum, it might be, you know, a two teacher household with a combined household income, you know, $115,000, $120,000 a year where it's, you know, all their benefits are coming from the same place. They don't have a lot of other accounts. It's relatively straightforward. Whereas, you know, on the, the high end of the spectrum, it might be folks who make four or $500,000 a year and have a million dollars of net worth and have, you know, multiple workplace accounts and a pension and a 457 and a taxable account. And they maybe are looking at uh, rental properties as well. So there's just significantly more things to advise on, you know, and net worth isn't a perfect proxy, right? As you, you've touched on, I work with a lot of people with, with student loans. You know, I put it together actually. Net worth is negative. <laughs> and there's a lot of complexity. <laughs> right, exactly. Right. I mean, I, I have a dozen or so clients with negative net worth, you know, and that's a complicated too, because is it, you know, if you're on track for forgiveness, right? I have a bunch of people who are, are working to achieve public service loan forgiveness. So those are loans that like the, the number on the screen that it says they owe will never actually be repaid. Right. So it's not really a great proxy for net worth, but they might have a negative $275,000 net worth according to, you know, what a, what a balance sheet would say. So that's, you know, maybe not a perfect. But I mean, how does that work in practice then? I mean, are you just, are you saying to prospects like, look, our baseline fee is 1% of your income plus half a percent of your net worth. But then we're going to make some adjustments from there, and then you just start adding for complexity or like back out the student loan. Out. Yeah, exactly. And I tell people like really upfront, like the way the fee is set, I, I put you know I will as we go through the the prospect call, I will say you know at the end of the call, based on this conversation and the information you shared, you know, in the survey ahead of our call, your fee would be this. I put that number directly in the email that I send to them. It's very much told to them, and then they have an opportunity to ask me questions if they have any questions. It's also in, you know, it's in their email, so they have it written. So it's not just like, did I remember what he said right? And then it's also, you know, on the agreement when they sign it and they set up the, in, in advice pay, they set up the recurring payment with it. So it's all pretty transparent and, and really easy for them to know exactly what it is. And then because, you know, because I don't have something that's really rigid on formula, anytime I'm going to raise a fee, it requires me to have a conversation with the client and say like, the fee was X, it is now going to be Y as of this date. For these reasons, you know, maybe it's significantly more complexity than there used to be, rising net worth that's adding to that complexity, or maybe someone changed jobs and suddenly now they have like stock options and a lot more income. And it's like there's just more planning going on than there was before. But again, anytime that I've had that conversation, and you know, it's 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 me having a conversation with my client and them either agreeing or not agreeing to that fee, right? So it's not something that necessarily happens totally organically. There isn't a natural rise in the fee in the way that there there might be for AUM. Well, and I was gonna ask, like, just do you systematically recalculate the fee every every year, every several years? Is this like 1% of income plus half percent of next worth adjusted for complexity, a like an annual process or a, yeah, how, how does it change over time? 
I do a I do a net worth update every January with clients. So I try to do meeting surges roughly January, May, September. That you know, my first meeting surge was January of 2020. So needless to say, the rest of that year didn't go perfectly smoothly right. as the as the Excel spreadsheet that I had drawn up and looked so pretty would have held. But any fee raises that I do, I, I typically try to do in in January because we're already you know updating the net worth statement at that point, anyways. And I'm having a meeting with all my clients. And I certainly wouldn't do it any more than, you know, one once a year at the most. And for a lot of clients, it's more like every other year that I will revise the fee. You know, I certainly think there's there's probably some people paying less than what my formula would. You know, the, I, I should revise that statement. There are people paying less than what my formula would state that they should. And that might just be, you know, a function of they've been around for a while and they're really great clients and they're really appreciative. And we've done a lot of the major planning. And at this point, it feels like, a fair fee relative to the time involved with what I'm doing with them and the impact that I'm having. You know, it's a blessing and a curse being able, you know, the my state that I live in is said complexity fees are acceptable, you know, which is wonderful and also does mean there's there's a little bit of messiness, uh, which I acknowledge. And that, that for you in practice, that's just, there's a bit of sub- subjectivity to the fee that's just part of the deal, which in practice happens for almost anyone that's setting setting fees on their own and not just using a a formulaic thing like assets under management calculation. So that's just that's just a reality for you. And you set your fees accordingly. And if a client's really got a problem with it, then they'll speak up or then they'll not speak hire up. you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think there's no perfect fee model, right? Like I think, you know, I've I've chased this a million ways. I've talked to so many people about it. Everyone has something they don't quite like about their fee structure that doesn't work for a specific type of client or it doesn't quite, you know, allow them to do exactly what they want to do. And I think, you know, just getting comfortable with the fact that it's going to be imperfect for a few people here and there, and that's just what it is. That's okay. So for me, for example, like, because I don't charge on assets, you know, if someone were to come to me and say, like, I really don't make any money, but I have a lot of assets. Can we work together? Like, probably not. I mean, I guess you could, if you wanted to make, you know, a, a draw out of a taxable account to, to pay my fee on a regular basis, sure. But like, that's not a type of client that really makes sense for me to work with because I'm charging out of, you know, cash flow. And so there's, there's probably someone whose model makes more sense for, for that sort of a client. But I think we all, we all probably have some gaps and that's okay. So then talk to us about what you do for 150 to $500 a month of of ongoing fees like what's the what's the offering for earning this kind of dollars on an ongoing basis from clients that don't necessarily have significant portfolios or even any portfolios we've noted yeah and i mean i'll say there's a range in the portfolios right i have clients that have a million plus dollars of invested assets and i have clients that have zero dollars of invested assets so there's quite a range so i start with a three sometimes four meeting process so you know we do the prospect call i send them a follow-up email that has, you know, uh, what we talked about, a summary of what we talked about, the proposed fee that I mentioned, my client engagement standards. It says really explicitly in that email, like, I'm building a small firm. It's me. You know, if you're comfortable working with a solo firm, I plan to work with 50 to 60 total households. You know, I'd love to work with you. And they say yes. All right, I got a whole bunch of questions right there. So one, explain what client engagement standards are. I stole this, I believe, from Carolyn McClanahan, I want to say. They were on the internet and I was like, that is great. So, you know, I, I think like a lot of people, as they start a firm, you know, signed up some people that maybe I shouldn't have in hindsight because a, I, you know, Hey, you're here and you want to get financial planning. So I'm going to give you financial planning. Even if I haven't really figured out if you're a good fit, if I want to work with you, those sorts of things. And I just realized there were some mismatches of like what people's expectations of what I would do for them and vice versa. And so it really just is a document that says like, this is what you can expect of me. 
this is what I expect of you, you know, so some of the things that are on there, like, you know, I believe in diversification and not chasing the next hot stock. Like if you're going to be regularly asking me for what should we do based on X event, you know, what should we do with my portfolio based on X event that happened today? Like I'm probably not the right advisor for you. So just like, we're just going to set some expectations up front of like, here's how it works if you're going to work with us. And if you don't believe in these things, like it's totally cool, but we're probably not going to be a good fit and work together. Yep, exactly. Exactly. It says on there, I'm willing to participate in the financial planning process on an ongoing continuing basis. And I understand that each part of the process is dependent and requires information or participation from me. I just want people to know, like they're hiring me to help them with their finances, but I will almost always need to work through them to get anything done for the most part. I mean, occasionally, yes, I can do some things without them, but like at the end of the day, you have to put in that insurance application. I cannot sign it for you. Or if I'm waiting on a, you know, 401k account statement, whatever it is, I want people to know that, that it's not like, Hey, I hired a financial planner and now my problems are solved. And most people don't think that, but occasionally, you know, you find someone that does. So I think just being really upfront and honest. So I include those engagement standards in the in the prospect kind of follow-up email, I also include them as part of the agreement signing. So they see them both before they agree to become a client and then they see them while signing up to become a client. And then I bring it up in the first meeting and I just say, do do you have any more questions about the client engagement standards? Is there anything on there you want to know more information about? People get an opportunity to ask. And I've found that since implementing that, I have a much better client fit. I think it's you know sort of... It's striking just hearing you describe it because this isn't just like here's the philosophy of our firm, you know, we're, we're, we believe in more passive investments and, you know, we're, we're not going to day trade you here or things to that effect, but that some of this is, is pretty direct to, to the clients, like the client saying, I will commit to engage in the planning process and respond to your financial planning requests. Like this is, this isn't just the expectations of the firm. This is literally like, here's what you, like, here's what you have to do and live up to if you want to get to be a client here. And then I was struck as well, you you said you lay out pretty pretty clearly up front, like, and I just want you to know that like this is a solo firm. It's just me. It's only intended to be me. I'm only going to have 50 or 60 clients. I know a lot of advisors that I think get anxious and nervous in talking about like not having a bench and all these other people, like the, they're, they're concerned that clients might not be happy if it's just them. So just I'm I'm struck that you are like happy and willing and interested to put that right out there up front. So I I guess I'm just wondering, like, does that make you worried? And where did that come from (laughs) to do that? It's a a great question. I definitely didn't say that the first year I was in business. You know, I definitely built a website that had a lot of we language, despite Mm -hmm. the fact that I, you know, it was just me. And I think with increasing confidence over time, I realized like the more transparent I can be with who I am, what I believe in, who I serve, what I'm planning to build for for my life and my family's life and what our goals are and how like this is a part of my life, but it's going to fit in around the other things, right? Like, like I said, I have two young kids and my wife also works. And so I am very upfront with people that like, I'm the person who takes the phone call when daycare calls and said, your kid is sick, they need to get picked up. That's me. And I just tell people that and I want them to know because, you know, I, I, and again, this is all lessons learned from a time where it didn't work. You know, there was a point during COVID where I had my very young daughter at the time on a call because, you know, I was having a call with one client. My wife was teaching high schoolers and had, you know, 27, 16 year olds on a call. If one of us has to have the child, it should be me. (laughs) And the client was really upset by it. And that person is no longer a client because I followed up with an email. I was like, I, this is my life. And if if that's going to bother you, I'm happy to find you another advisor, but I, I'm not going to build a business that pushes out the other pieces of my life. And so I've just realized the more upfront I can be with people of saying like, 
it's a small firm. It's going to be really personal. You know, you're not going to get handed on to a junior advisor two years from now. And for some people, you're right. It's, it's, it's not appealing to them and they want to go to a place where they know there's like a larger infrastructure in place. There are other people that it's extremely appealing to them because they're intimidated by the industry. They don't want a big, a big fancy firm name. They don't want to feel like they're a customer. They want to feel like they have a relationship with another human being very directly and they find it very appealing. So yeah, it definitely probably does screen out some people. I'm sure that it has led to some people that I've you know had a prospect call with deciding to work with someone else. But I also feel like the people that do say yes are then never surprised. Yep, it really is me. And I really do have my dog in my office most days. And I really don't ever wear a suit and tie. Never, never, never. And like, I'm just, because I've kind of set that whole expectation from the beginning of who I am and what I'm building, especially because I don't need to have hundreds of clients, right? The model I'm trying to build, I can be, you know, very successful with a relatively small number of clients. And so if I can do that, I should be selective about it to make sure that they get the best person for them and that I'm, you know, really happy with when I look down my client roster with everyone that's on it. So, so first you have the prospect call and the, the follow-up email we talked about, here's what we talked about client engagement standards, the, the fee we discussed, you know, let's be clear, I'm a solo, make sure you're okay with that. So then what, what comes next in the process for you? Yep. So if they say yes, we then we go into the financial planning process. You know, I think my process is probably not totally dissimilar to a lot of folks. You know, the first, we have usually four meetings up front. The first meeting will be a lot of discovery in the first call. I would say, you know, I am not a registered life planner. I, I would like to sharpen my skills in that area and get better in that area. But I do ask a lot of kind of big picture questions about, you know, what do you never regret spending money on and what sacrifices are you willing to make and what sacrifices aren't you willing to make? I do have a sort of a modified version of the kinder exercises that I send ahead of time to kind of get them thinking about what their goals are. So we spend about an hour just really doing big picture discovery stuff. And then we spend about a half hour. It's two very different meetings in one. It's like an hour of like not talking about logistics at all and just like really big picture and what's important to you and how is money in your relationship and why are you here? And then we spend the last half hour like, all right, this is how we work together. This is how Right Capital works. This is where to put the documents that you're about to get for me. This is how to link your accounts. Let's schedule our next couple of meetings. All those sort of like logistical things happen then too. And then meeting two is typically a cash flow meeting. So we make sure that we have a cash flow plan set up, making sure that it's really clear. Like what is the total household have coming in, what is fixed that's, you know, going out every month that kind of stays the same, you know, your mortgage, you know, all those other things that stay the same every month. What what are the savings buckets that you're putting money to? And then, you know, how much is left over at the end? So once we've accounted for your fixed expenses and saving for all those things that you just told me are important to you, how much is left over? And we figure out if that's, you know, a reasonable amount to live on for all the other groceries and entertainment and those sorts of things, or if it's not, and then how to adjust the, the plan from there. The third meeting typically would then be about investments. So figuring out, okay, what do you have going on? I do a lot of investor education. You know, I have a lot of people who will literally ask questions like, do I have a good 401k? And like peel back, peel back the layers of that. Like what, what does it mean to say, do I have a good 401k? But if you, there are a lot of really smart, really talented people who don't know anything when it comes to stocks, bonds, funds, the difference between large cap, small, mid cap, small cap. You know, and then there's also people who know just enough to be dangerous, right? People have heard, like, I've heard I should index. And then you see that their taxable account that they plan to use six years from now is all in an S&P 500 index fund. You're like, I mean, I guess there's worse things you could do, but also you're 100% in US stocks for money you need six years from now. That's probably not what I'd recommend. And so we go over their investments and, and give a high level of like, what do you have going on? How does that align to the tenets that I just laid out? And what are the changes that I'm suggesting you make? And then the fourth meeting is sort of anything else that's left in the plan that we haven't talked about. So it tends to be 
insurance, estate plans. I have a lot of you know people that come to me and don't yet have life insurance in place or estate plans in place. That's often a part of the planning that we're doing. So it's sort of, you know, what are all the other things that we haven't yet talked about? So we'll talk through them, but also then come up with like, okay, we've talked about a lot of different things. What are the actual action steps from here? So we've just spent a lot of time together over these four meetings. What's the priority in the next three months? And then we kind of get our, you know, four, five, six action steps and try to focus on those things first before going into a, you know, a planning process where I meet with people about three times a year to stay up to date and stay you know, on top of what they have going on. But I also tell people the three times a year is for me to make sure I'm checking in with you three times a year in a, in a structure that works for me. But if you have things that come up in your life between those meetings, you are welcome and encouraged to call, email, schedule a meeting because, you know, things aren't going to happen on my meeting schedule. They're going to happen on your life schedule. So after the initial meetings, we, we go to three a year and I would say a lot of clients end up being four a year, like the three scheduled and then one for something else, we end up on the phone and as well as, you know, emails and, and texts in between. And for this planning process, as you're, as you're going through it, are you using planning software? Are you building things in, in Word documents? Is this just heavily communication education, but not necessarily a big old written plan? What does planning look like for you? Like many things has gone through a lot of iterations in these last four and a half years. So I use Right Capital and I use Right Capital as the hub of the work that I do with people because I think it has enough things in one place that are helpful, right? It's, it's got a task manager so you can list out all the client's tasks and all the tasks I'm going to do for them and you can aggregate net worth and there's an okay budget tool in there. It's good for doing a retirement projection at a very high level. You know, I do a very, very high level Monte Carlo analysis for people. You know, obviously some folks, I don't even do that because they haven't started saving yet with others. I put a big old asterisk and say like, you're 32. We don't need to get into the weeds of a Monte Carlo. Let me just give you a like, you're doing great. You're doing yeah. okay. Or you have major changes you need to make. That's really all you need to know at this point. Right. Because, because you know, at the end of the day, just when you're 30, like the, the range of outcomes is so far at some points, like you're, you're currently saving $600 a month on your current trajectory. According to the Monte Carlo analysis, you will have somewhere between 200,000 and $8.2 million. Exactly. Just exactly. Like, like it's not, not that helpful. useful of an exercise. I think it's helpful to show literally just those three things I mentioned, like you're doing great. You're doing okay, but probably need to make some changes to have more certainty or like you're really off track, but like really don't spend hardly any time there at all. And then I also supplement that with other things. So as we mentioned, like student loans, I, I do not believe that Right Capital student loan tool is sufficient for student loan planning. I use Loan Buddy for that. And I also use Excel, sort of depends on the case. I use some Excel and some Loan Buddy. What's Loan Buddy just for advisors who aren't familiar? So Loan Buddy is a student loan planning software. So it's student loan planning specific. It's not tied to other pieces of the financial plan, but it's pretty robust. I would say I think Loan Buddy does the best job of the available tools at student loan planning. I still don't think it does everything I would hope a student loan plan planning tool would do. So if that is probably the best out there, in my opinion, and please, if someone knows of something that's really excellent for student loan planning, I'm always all ears to that. But I do think there's still, you want to do some checking of some of the stuff that comes out. And there's some scenarios if there's going to be big changes in someone's life that, that it doesn't necessarily do that well. But it lets you, you know, upload someone's student loan data and run different scenarios based on forgiveness programs or different income-driven plans that they may have available to them. So that, that does not happen in Right Capital. And just can you talk about that a moment further, just for advisors who do not live in student loan planning world, like just what do you do? Like, like sure. what, do you, what are you actually analyzing and talking about and, and giving them recommendations on beyond like 
you have some student loans, it'd probably be good to save enough money to pay those off. Yeah, right? Like uh, snowball the debt, right? Just pay more yeah. money every month. That's how it works, right? So really the fundamental question every person has to answer when they have student loan debt is like, is the ultimate goal to work this debt to zero by paying it down? Or is the ultimate goal some sort of forgiveness? So that could be either via some sort of forgiveness program, public service loan forgiveness being the most prominent one. But there's also, if you're on an income-driven plan for 20 or 25 years, depending on the plan, and at the end of that 20 or 25 years, you still have a student loan balance, that debt is then forgiven according to current law. And for some people, that is actually going to cost them less money in the long run. You know, Typically, someone who has substantially more debt, You know, I, def- I see people all the time who have six figures of student loan debt and might make sixty or seventy or $80,000 a year, right? So for someone in that situation, it will probably cost them less money to stay on an income-driven plan for the next 20 years than to try to pay that debt down to zero. And so for them, you're actually trying not to pay the debt off. You're trying to get the smallest payment possible to free up the ability to do other things in their lives. So for them, choosing amongst the different income-driven repayment plans, there's five different plans that tie your payment to your income via some formula, but each of them have slightly different rules. And so depending which one you choose, you might get slightly different outcomes. And some are available to all borrowers, but some of the plans are only available to some borrowers. So sometimes I might be talking to someone and say, well, if you're eligible for this one, this is the one I'd use. Oh, wait, no, you have a loan that you took out before 2007. So actually you're not eligible for the pay-as-you-earn plan. You need to use the income-based repayment plan is one example. So we're really deciding, like, are you working this to zero or are you going for some form of forgiveness? On this form of forgiveness, you know, if you're going for public service loan forgiveness, which I have, you know, a dozen or so people, there's a whole process around, like, is your paperwork in order? Have you gotten the monthly credits for the months that you're supposed to have gotten? Are there any issues? Okay, how do we plan for lowering your payment, if at all possible? Because, of course, if your debt's going to be forgiven, the goal should be to pay as little as possible. Well, your payment is based on your adjusted gross income. So how can we lower your adjusted gross income? So maybe someone in that case, it might make sense to, I've had people where they were making Roth contributions and I was like, oh, actually, I understand why you might've been making Roth contributions, but if you're making pre-tax mm. contributions instead, that's going to lower your AGI. And since your student loan payment is based on your AGI, you'll get a lower student loan payment. And since you're not trying to pay it down to zero, that leaves you more money to do other things. Right. And and literally, if, if the plan is PSLF and everything's going to get forgiven at the end of a 10-year window, like literally getting the tax deduction on the IRA over the Roth to reduce the payment is, is basically like an indirect return on mm-hmm. not going Roth. Exactly. Because you're you're keeping back debt repayments that you will just get to keep by not Rothing. And not doing the Roth. Exactly. Exactly. So that's, you know, one example of planning there, you know, with with couples who have student loan debt, there's, you know, even additional complexity depending if they, you know, who has how much debt and, you know, is the higher earner also have the higher debt or does the higher earner have lower debt? Do either of them have private loans? So figuring out what the right plan is, not just, you know, for an individual, but as a household can be pretty complex, especially like if one person is eligible for public service loan forgiveness, but the other person is not and is trying to pay theirs down to zero. So you end up maybe giving different advice on the different loans based on what the ultimate goal for that stack of loans is. And then you know on the other side on the folks working it down to zero it's it's more similar to traditional you know debt planning of like how do we you know is there an opportunity to refinance and lower the interest rate okay what are the pros and cons of student loan refinancing so like I had a client who had about one hundred and fifteen thousand dollars of student loan debt who in gosh this was November or December of twenty nineteen I want to say he decided to refinance his student loans because he wasn't going for any sort of forgiveness program and he could get his interest rate down several points. So he you know, refinanced his federal student loans to a private student loan holder. And on paper, that was going to save him, I think it was like fourteen dollars or $15,000 over the course of the 10-year payoff. So it was really a you know, smart move. And then 
the CARES Act payment freeze comes into play. So, so student loan payments haven't been required since March of 2020, and he's still required to make his payment because the private student loan holder didn't freeze payments. Because he opted himself out of mm-hmm. the federal program by doing the refi to a private program. Yeah, and, and I think it's just it's a good example to show that there are possible downsides to private refinancing. So it's not always the right answer. It has to be, you know, you you lose the ability to do any sort of the federal income-driven repayment programs. Federal student loans have much more generous like forbearance provisions than private student loans may have. And then the thing that's lingering out there and who knows, but you know, if there if there ever is some sort of, you know, across the board student loan forgiveness of 10,000 or 30,000 or 50,000 or whatever it is, you know, anyone who's privately refinanced very likely won't benefit from that. So you're weighing what is the possible benefit of staying in with the federal loans versus the certain you know reduction in interest if you were to privately refinance. So for some people it makes sense to privately refinance, others it doesn't. So that's a we spent I spent a lot of time in in this arena with people because it tends to be one of the more pressing topics that you know in a lot of ways can be blocking their ability financially, but also just kind of mentally to worry about the other spots of their financial life because they are so focused on figuring out how to manage these unwieldy student loans. And in terms of the planning process, like I'm just wondering, is this, do you get into this as part of your cash flow meeting in the process? Does this come up more in the like other column meeting number four? Like where, where does this actually come into your process? Yeah. So, so typically I will say that it would be if they have, especially if they're significant student loan debts, if someone has, you know, $19,000 left and it's already on a plan and they're just paying it every month, then like probably we're not going to spend a lot of time on it. Typically, it would be if it's substantial debt in in the second or perhaps the third meeting because payments have been frozen now for over a year. For a lot of people, I say like we're going to get to that, but literally there's no action to take for months right. and months now. So like let's let's do the things that maybe will have an impact in the next one to three months. And student loans don't. So I actually had a meeting this morning with a client who like we we decided in the meeting that she is very likely going to privately refinance her debt based on her situation. However, we are not going to make a final decision on that until like late August, early September, because we want to see if there's any more changes that happen in this arena between now and then. And since she literally doesn't have a payment due between now and then, there's no reason we should not wait. And is there a particular structure around how the ongoing meetings go? You had said you're typically trying to meet with clients three times a year and and you'd, you'd separately said you're actually working, I think, on a meeting surge structure. So can you talk more about how the ongoing meetings aspects of this goes? Yeah. I think I picked up the surge structure from a, from a podcast you did with, I want to say, Benjamin Brandt up in North Dakota. Yeah, he does. He does meeting surges. Yeah, it just made so much sense to me. You know, if I'm going to meet with everyone, how can I not, you know, how can I get out of the walking into every week having, you know, three or four client meetings and maybe a prospect meeting and some marketing thing I'm supposed to do and I have to do that planning thing for that person. It's like you're, you know, as a solo firm, jumping and task switching over and over and over, I just felt like was very inefficient for me. I hope to to meet, you know, on that on that meeting search schedule of roughly January, May, September. And what I always tell people is like, I'm going to have some things that I want to bring up at least once a year to make sure that we're talking about them and that I'm not missing anything as things change and move in your financial life. And also I want you to bring to the meeting whatever is most pressing for you, right? So like, just because I want to make sure we talk about X, whatever it is, reviewing your auto insurance to make sure that you're properly covered in this meeting. Well, if you just found out that you're expecting a baby, you know what? I should probably take my auto insurance thing way down the agenda because you've got a whole lot of questions about healthcare and 529s and daycare and tax credits and all of the things that come with suddenly having a family for the first time. So generally, I would try to do a net worth update and 
goal setting in January. So what went well in the past year? What do you hope to accomplish in the next year? Let's get your net worth updated. How do you feel about how this has grown? Let's celebrate the accomplishments. I think for a lot of people, it's really great for them to actually see once a year like, oh yeah, no, we had X amount of debt at this point last year and look at how much lower it is now. Because they right. sort of lose track of how much progress they're making. I have some clients that will say like, I'm just so bad with money. I'm not doing anything right. And then I'll pull it up and say, well, like, actually your net worth grew by $80,000 last year. And that was, you know, partially yes, because of market returns. But in your case, because you don't have a huge portfolio, it was much more due to the fact that you're saving more and paying debt down faster right. than you were previously. So we do a net worth update. In the middle of the year, typically that meeting, I will do investment updates. So just sort of like if there's anything with their investments that needs updating, I will generally push for people to raise their savings rate at that point. If they're not doing some sort of, you know, auto escalation in their 401k, just right there in the meeting, go in like, yeah, we're up to 10%. Let's try to get that to 11. Or do you feel like you could do 12? Like, how would that fit in? And kind of nudging people upwards over time, as well as any questions they have about, you know, retirement and investments. And certainly with my, my few clients who are, who are older and are either in retirement or near retirement, we spend more time, you know, on the investments and, and retirement planning side during that meeting. And then the, the fall meeting is typically like any end of year tax planning stuff that needs to happen. And then any insurance review or estate planning review, you know, sometimes it's just, hey, let's pull out that estate plan. Does it still make sense? Oh, wait, you had a baby and you never added that baby to your estate plan. So right now it's going to all go to your eldest and your youngest got left off. Let's get that updated. Right. Stuff like that. But I also always send an agenda to all clients. You know, I send, you know, what I have as my agenda, as well as a short survey to clients, you know, about two weeks ahead of the call. And I say, like, update me on what's going on in your life and what, what things do you want to make sure we talk about? Because I want to make sure we start the meeting by addressing the things that are on their brains so that, you know, I'm not trying to lead the conversation to a thing that isn't their priority. As you stack meetings for surges, like how surgy are your surges? Like what, how, how much are you actually trying to stack meetings in practice? Yeah, I think not, not that surgy. Like I've heard of people who do, you know, five or six meetings in a day and I, I cannot do that. I think three, maybe four is my max limit. Just like my brain capacity to do a good job and be a thoughtful listener. That's about where I land. So I will, you know, I met with, I can say this, I met with every one of my clients, except for, except for one who had just had a baby. And so they, they were not ready to meet, but between April 19th and whatever Memorial day is like May 25th. So there was like a five week stretch and I met with, you know, 47 clients in that five weeks. So, you know, 12 to 15 a week throughout that stretch. I do open up, I open up one Saturday during each of those surges where I will meet with four people just because I do have a lot of young families that it's hard to coordinate meeting during the day. And I do some night meetings during those surges. So I'll do Tuesday nights. I'll take a meeting or two, although I'm working to phase that out as, as you know, with my own kids getting older and not going to bed as early as they once did. And I'm just struck though. So uh, 12 to 15 kind of client meetings per week over five weeks. If you're, if you're doing, you know, th three or four a day before it, it, it just starts wearing on you. That's still, I'm doing the math. Like that really is kind of three to four day meetings per day, four to five days a week. Like it is packed in every week at that level straight yeah. through straight through for four or five weeks but then but then you get through all of them and aside from the clients with the random needs that crop up like you have no more scheduled client meetings from basically from memorial day until labor day yeah i mean i'll have some with you know newer clients who are earlier in that process but certainly like i actually i'm just i pulled up my july calendar right here and i have i'm trying to see how many i have with existing clients one two in the month of july i have two meetings with clients who are long-term clients I do have a couple of new clients that I'm in the process of onboarding. So I have meetings with them on there as well. That leaves me a lot of time to be able to, you know, work on the business. I'm going to take a couple of days and go kind of on a solo retreat by myself to just kind of think about where I want the business to be in three or four years. And I can comfortably do that because I know I just met with a lot of people. 
and my family and I are going on another trip. And so we're spending a week offline doing that. There's a couple of days where daycare is closed. So I'll be home with my kids on the days where there's a, a closure of our daycare in July. And so the month of July, I'm, I'm working, but I'm not working, you know, 40 hours, five days a week sort of thing. I'm, I'm working a, a good bit less than that for a full month. And how do you handle preparation for the surge meetings? So I know for many advisors doing surges, it's like, it's a firm-wide effort. You know, the, the whole team is helping with all the prep work and they're surging on client prep while you surge on client meetings, but you are a solo. So there is not a like, hey team, get ready to prep all my client files for that five weeks. That's on you also. So how does that work? Yeah. Working to do this further and further in advance, admittedly during 2020 with all of the unpredictability of that, it fell down somewhat. But I work to send out a I set up a Calendly, you know, a special Calendly invite to clients and I send an email to all the clients, you know, about a month before the search starts. So I'll do this, you know, the first week of August roughly. And I'll say, hey, you know, would love to check in for the fall. I intend to talk about any end of year tax planning as well as check in on insurance and estate. But most importantly, I want to hear what's going on with you. Here's where to sign up for a meeting. Here's the survey to update me. Look forward to talking to you soon. And usually I'll get like half my clients signed up just from that. And then, you know, have to send a few reminders. And then usually I'll do a text reminder like a week later to any clients that haven't responded yet. And I get to 80 or 90% have probably signed up by the time the search starts. There's a few stragglers, you know, something else has taken their their attention and they haven't been able to do it and that's okay. So I don't get hundred percent, but I get pretty close. And then in terms of the prep, you know, I then try to make sure that at least two weeks out, I'm then on a rolling basis spending some time. So my days, like I said, you know, I'm only doing prep for meetings or follow-ups for meetings. So you know, two weeks ahead of the beginning of the surge, I will make sure that I've sent an agenda and that survey out to, to the client, make sure that I know what's on their mind, make sure that they've updated right capital with anything. You know, if they put anything in their survey that's like really big, I might send a follow-up email question just so I, you know, have all the information I need before we actually talk. And then after the meeting, you know, I try to make sure that I have time between each meeting to record notes right away. So I'm not trying to like sit down at the end of the day and do notes from three or four meetings. I try to space them out far enough that I can take some time to digest, make sure that I've written down my to-dos, their to-dos. I keep a Google Doc that is the the notes of every meeting I've ever had with a client and it's just running in, in reverse chronological order. So for my clients that I've been working with for three or four years now, it literally has all of our meeting notes in the same document. And I find that's really helpful both for them and for me to have, you know, a summary of our conversation, you know, an agenda, the summary of our conversation, what I said I'm going to do, what their commitments are to doing at the end of the meeting. And I can always scroll down and see what we talked about last time right there in the same document. So I never have to go find like, what were the notes from that last time we met with them? And then just, you know, add, add in any of my notes from that day and make sure I email the client and say, hey, you know, here were your to-dos and I'll follow up with mine within the next two weeks. So out of curiosity, if you're keeping all of that in a, you know, client notes, in a Google Doc for for each client, do you do you not use the CRM system and all of it manages from a Google Doc, or are you also living in a CRM system? I use Wealthbox. I will say that I, I definitely don't use it to its full capacity. I just find as a solo firm, like I use Wealthbox to store important, you know, birth dates and social security numbers in a secure way and things like that. And I'll use some of the workflows, but in terms of notes, I just you know find it a lot easier to have all the notes there. And I also switched recently, not recently, I guess probably a year ago, to I put client tasks in Right Capital's tasks instead of Wealthbox. What I found, it was just hard because I didn't have a way for clients to see in a software tool. Like in Wealthbox, it's, it's only facing me, not externally. And so I wanted a spot where they could see what were the things that were involved in financial planning that they were supposed to do. And so once I put theirs in Wealthbox, I just decided like I'm going to put my own tasks in there too, or I'm sorry, in right capital. So I stopped using the 
the tasks feature that's within Wealthbox. Just I think this is a problem everybody has is like, where do I keep tasks that's, you know, and everyone settles out somewhere somewhat different. I found that the right capital task manager, you know, it does a pretty good job. It sends people reminders of when their stuff is due. I get an email when they check something off. So if someone, you know, completes a rollover and I get a little email notification because it says, you know, Michael completed his 401k rollover to his IRA and I get a notification because he checked it off that he did it. And I like having the things that I'm doing for them listed as well and checking them off as I go. Probably this is like lingering confidence that I should should be more confident in, but it's like, look, I'm doing things. I, I don't feel the need to do that near as much as I probably did three years ago because I think I'm, I'm at a place where my confidence is such where I don't have sort of as much imposter syndrome as I once did. But that's another reason to have them in there. What happens if you get clients that want to meet on top of the surge schedule, right? I mean, just even the extreme, I'm imagining like the, you know, the client who set up the surge meeting the last week of May, but then they're like, Oh, something happened. I need to meet with you at the, at the end of April or like a client who takes the first surge meeting and then life happens in May. And they're like, Ryan, I, I know we just met three weeks ago. I need to see you again. Like, is that fine? Do you fit it in? Is that like a fear, but it doesn't really actually happen because usually it just doesn't happen that there's anything that urgent in their life. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it happens, but I feel like this is a this is a two way street in a relationship. And like, if you have something that you feel the need to talk to me about, and like, then I should be there for you to talk to me about it. And you know, I'm not going to necessarily like bend over backwards to create a ton of space in my schedule if you're asking in, in the middle of the surge for a second time. But I certainly will like try my best to find a time that works for you. And I'm not, you know, by no means is it you can only book in these five weeks and then you have no availability for the next three months. That is not at all. You know, I tell people like, yeah, I mean, I had this happen recently where. We met. I met with some clients in May, and I've gotten an email from them since that says, "Hey, we're expecting a baby. Could we talk before September?" <laughs> yes, of course, absolutely. That's one of my July meetings that I have on my calendar. Of course, we can. You know, I, I know that people's lives don't unfold in perfectly smooth ways, and so sometimes we'll talk more than that, and that's okay. But as you've noticed, at the end of the day, like all forty-seven clients met over the five-week window, and so now you have two in July. Exactly. So <laughs> got plenty of time on my calendar. I mean, I block some stuff off to, you know, do, do internal work and those sorts of things, but like, it's not very restrained on where you can find a time. And so then I'm also wondering, you know, just a firm where you're solely charging planning fees, you're not, you're not getting paid for insurance implementation. You're not even taking separate dollars for investment impl implementation. You said you're not, you're not drawing AUM fees. So what do you do for clients who need insurance, investments, estate documents, like how do you handle that in a firm like yours? Yeah, let's go, let's go down the list. So insurance, I have worked with LLIS a lot to implement insurance. I've also experimented with some of the instant online life insurance platforms and some have been better than others in terms of the experience. I find LLIS generally does a good job of helping clients get the right insurance in place. So I, you know, I try to connect them to the right expertise and have someone who is philosophically aligned to what I am, what my beliefs are in my firm and, and let them be the expert in that area. So for advisors who aren't familiar, like what's LLIS and what do they actually do or work with you? Yeah, no, it's a low load insurance services. So they're an insurance broker that, you know, it's low load insurance services, right? So they, they try to strip out a lot of the commissions associated with insurance. And so they're, you know, I can have a client fill out a survey on their website that puts in all the information and then I'm copied on all the emails. So I know like so-and-so has applied, so-and-so is waiting to hear back from Banner, so-and-so is waiting for their medical records to come in. So I'm sort of kept in the loop the whole way. And so clients feel that I'm connected to that process, even if I'm not personally doing it. And doesn't bother you that at the end of the day, like there's some kind of load, i.e. commission that, that, that low load gets for the, for the products that are being implemented? I've found that they do a really good job of, of 
steering people to what it is they actually need. And they also will take the advisor's recommendation, you know, for the people that I am working with. I believe it's, I don't want to start a holy war here, but I believe term insurance is all that most of them need. I don't think whole life is appropriate for really any of the clients that I have. There are cases where it is, but not, not for my clientele. And so, you know, if I say, you know, a 30 year term policy for $750,000 is what you need, like they're not deviating from that. And then what else? So that covers the insurance side of things. In essence, just they get referred over to, to LLIS. LLIS implements whatever insurance they need. They're coordinating with you. They're keeping you in the loop. They're facilitating the recommendation if you had a particular thing. And then client gets it issued through through them. Exactly. Exactly. So then what about estate planning? Estate planning, you know, I have a couple of local attorneys that I've worked with. I I can't bring myself to use some of these online tools in that they all have a disclaimer at the bottom that says, you know, we are not a law firm and we cannot be held responsible for legal advice. And like, that just doesn't feel like language I want on the website of the company I'm referring someone to get their will done through. So I have some local folks that I will refer to here that I have worked with long enough that I really trust and, and know what they need. And then there's also a website called thoughtfulwills.com that I think does a really good job. So I think, I'll, you know, what I just referenced is there's all these platforms that are like tech platforms trying to do legal work. And Thoughtful Wills is lawyers who are using technology. So they're in, I think it's 35 states or something. They're not actually in Louisiana, but I've referred for clients because I have clients in 13 different states. They will use tech to walk people through the process of the documents that they need and get them documents sent. And it's usually at a little bit less expensive rate than what you find with some estate planners. And then again, you know, if a client opts into allowing me to be kept in the process, like you can, you can get an update on where they are in the process as long as a client, you know, has said it's okay for, for me too. So I've had some success using them as well. What kind of costs do you get into for their stuff? Yeah. So, I mean, again, you know, client pays directly to Thoughtful Wills. You know, their pricing has changed a few times, but I found it's been between 500 and 1,000 for a lot of the clients I work with. And, you know, oftentimes, you know, you go to an attorney for some basic estate plans for, you know, a two-teacher couple who makes $120,000 and have a kid on the way and they're, you know, add their ass $2,500 to write an estate plan. And, like, that's not, like, they're just not going to do it if that's the option that I present, right? Like, that is, of course, it's important, but they're not going to be able to carve out that huge sum of money relative to their incomes for documents that they know are important, but, but it's hard to get them to get over that hump. And so I've, I found thoughtful was like a little bit more economical while still being a true law firm. And I feel like that's a good. Right. So a good deal less than your local attorney that may be $2,000, but, but more than your, you know, legal zoom or equivalent. That's a few hundred dollars for a couple. Exactly. Exactly. Interesting. And then how do you handle the investment side of things? Yeah. Betterment is my answer to that. So, so what I believe is, you know, Betterment has automated much of what I believe about investing. You know, I believe, you know, low cost index, well diversified, trade as little as possible, rebalance according to rules, tax loss harvest when there's an opportunity. I don't, nothing too fancy here. And I think for most people, that's all they need, right? And I'm not saying that for everybody. It's all, I'll use Betterment for a lot of clients. Clients are not required to use Betterment. So I have clients that self-manage at Vanguard. I have clients that self-manage at Fidelity. It's really up to them. I also have clients who have come to me with Vanguard accounts and decided to switch to Betterment, even though there's a small fee associated, just because it's like really modern platform, easy to use. They like the interface. They found it easier. They didn't want to worry about going in and rebalancing themselves once a year. They would rather just have it done automatically. So I've actually had some people switch, but I, I basically walk people through you know, here's what's going on in your investments. These are the recommendation changes I would make. 
I can help you do it on this platform called Betterment. They charge, you know, 25 bips or 20 bips because there's an XYPN member discount. They charge, you know, 20 basis points. I don't make anything more than I'm making now. So, you know, your choice, know that I don't make any more or less money if you move your money to Betterment. I personally hold my money at Betterment. If that is convincing in any way, just because I I don't need to be the one that clicks the button. I understand intellectually what is going on. I understand the portfolios that they've built. I understand the rules that they have in place around rebalancing and tax loss harvesting. I just don't want to sit there and do that for myself. And if I don't want to sit there and do it for myself, you know, I, I feel pretty comfortable recommending people can outsource that as well. A lot of people do. And some choose not to. And I don't, you know, and I've had some people who, you know, after a year of, of us working together, they're like, yeah, actually, you know, let's just, let's just do it. I think that's a good idea. And so I've, I found a good amount of success with that. And then, you know, a lot of people, because of their age, the people I work with, you know, a lot of their money is tied up in a 401k. So that's more, you know, me advising based on the, the fund choices available to them. We might literally pull it up during a meeting and switch an allocation during a meeting. I'm struck by this, that just, there's a lot of using external platforms. You, you don't get a piece of it. You're not a part of it. Right, like Lolode gets their investment fee, the Thoughtful Wills gets their legal fee, Betterment gets their AUM fee, and you get your planning fee. Yeah, and you can add XYTS on the tax side. XY, XY Tax Solutions. XY Tax Solutions. So, you know, I had, I think, 14 people get their tax return done via XYTS this year, and I was really happy with it. Again, you know, I'm kept in the loop. I can upload documents on behalf of someone, and people really appreciate that. Like, it, you know, the, the first thing XYTS asks you to do is like, can you upload your last two tax returns after you've signed your engagement? You know, because they want to make sure they understand what's going on in your previous returns. And I just do that for clients, and it takes me, you know, forty five seconds because I have the returns in my, you know, in my vault. But it took one small little task off their plate for them, and I'm able to see the return before it goes to the client, and so I'm able to make sure that it includes, you know, if we did any Roth conversions or you know anything that I know has happened, making sure that it's included on the return. And so it's just like, here's here's a provider that does tax preparation, but they work directly with our advisory firm. We can work collaboratively with them. So we'll stay involved in the process and we can save you some time for it. And you don't have to worry that they're going to go after the client because it's not a CPA also doing wealth management. It's just a outsourced tax provider for financial advisors. Exactly. And like they're the experts in what they do. And I believe my role should really to be to know enough about all of these areas to help them sift through their options. You know, I certainly, you know, I have clients that do their own taxes and clients that, you know, have existing CPA relationships. So they're like, no one's any under obligation to use any of these, but they're looking to me for expertise. And as someone who is more, you know, is, is a professional in this field and understands what to be looking for, I can give them a recommendation. And I also want to be really clear, like I'm giving you this recommendation, but I don't have a financial relationship with this person that I'm referring you to. And so people can feel pretty confident that I'm, I'm advising what I believe is the right thing for them to do, not the right thing just for my paycheck. And, it, you know, no one, again, when, when you say to someone, you're under no obligation to do this, but this is what I think you should do. They, they tend to believe in you, right? They tend to say like, well, I mean, he has no reason to say this other than because he thinks it's the right thing to do. And do you ever get an issue of just clients saying like, wait, I'm, I'm paying them for all these things and I'm paying you like I'm, I'm paying, I'm paying you for advice on insurance, but then low load still gets commission. Like I'm, I'm paying you for investment guidance, but then Betterment's still getting an AUM fee. I mean, do you get clients that express concern about, it feels like I'm paying twice for this? Cause I, I hear that concern a lot from advisors thinking about doing this, but I'm wondering, do you, do you see that in practice or is that we're all stuck in our heads worrying that clients are inject about things that they don't actually object about? It's what you just said. I've never had someone object because if someone objects, they don't have to do it, right? <laughs> like I have a client who likes to self-manage at Vanguard and once a year we have a meeting where we go in and rebalance and he enjoys doing that and that's fine. I, I 
don't really understand why he chooses to continue to do that personally, but that's fine. Like I get it. Like, okay, he's chosen to do that because he thinks the, like, it's like, you know, nine basis points in difference. We calculated between the funds he's using at Vanguard and what he'd pay with, with Betterman's fee. He wants to save that nine basis points and do it himself and click the button himself. And okay, that's fine. Right. But like, they're not required to there. I'm giving the best advice that I can based on the, my expertise in the field. I think that's entirely in advisor's heads. People are hiring the advisor because they're a person who knows how to navigate spaces that might be really uncomfortable for a lot of people. And so they know that if I'm, I'm sending you to someone that I trust because I think it's someone that will help solve this problem that you have in your financial situation. And I don't care whether I get paid for it or not. Well, and I'm, I'm always struck by it because I, you know, I hear this concern come up around things like, yeah, I feel bad if I'm giving the advice, but then the client is paying someone else an insurance commission for implementation or I feel bad if I'm giving them overall financial planning advice, but then Betterment's getting an AUM fee for the implementation. But I almost never hear anyone say, well, it's really weird that like I might give, be giving the client some tax guidance, but they still pay their CPA to prepare their tax return. Exactly. Or like I'm I'm giving the client estate planning guidance, but but they still pay their lawyer to draft the documents. Like it's normal, air quotes, like it's normal in the estate planning and tax realm. It's very alien, I find, for us in the insurance and the investment realm. I'm struck that just your, your you, like your model just puts all of them in one even bucket. Like nothing's better or worse. Just hey, you pay me for planning, and I have a long list of providers that I can refer you to for help in various areas. They do what they do, and they get paid for it. But I help you navigate it and figure out which is the right one to pick, and make sure that they give you the right recommendation and implement the right thing for you. And and that's my role in this process. And you pay me for what I do, and you pay them for what they do. And clients are totally fine with that. Totally completely fine with it. I do think that that is, is more in our industry, sort of uh, a feeling of need to do all of these things for people or like be uh, at the forefront of people's minds at all times. And I don't, you know, I, I don't think we need to play that role. We need to help them solve the problems that they have in front of them. And I sometimes can be the right person to solve that. But oftentimes there's actually someone better equipped to solve that problem that has more expertise in that area. And I am wise enough and experienced enough in the field to uh, like to, to have spotted the problem and identified that you need it fixed, which a lot of people maybe haven't even done yet. You know, the number of people I talk to who are young parents who don't have life insurance is very high because they haven't figured out how to navigate life insurance because, you know, they, there's so many different kinds and how much do you need and how do you get it? And what about these new online companies? And like my college roommate's brother reached out to me and, <laughs> and he was trying to sell me about this life insurance thing. And like, maybe I should go with him. And so it's just overwhelming and they freeze up. And so they're saying like, Hey, you already, you know, we've, we've already like gotten financially naked with you, right? Like we've given you all of our information, told you all the stuff that we have going on, good, bad, and otherwise. And I trust you to tell me, how do I navigate this whole insurance thing? And for a lot of people, that's LLIS. And I have had some people too, where depending on the need, maybe it might be through work or via one of the online platforms, if there's a particular situation that where that makes sense. So how we just understand how you think about this at a high level, because for a lot of advisors, I know we want to do things like also be managing the assets or even also be doing the tax return preparation in-house because it's part of quote unquote, making the client stickier, right? Just like the more touch points we have, the more connect with them the more likely it is that they stick with us and the harder it is for, for them to, to terminate and leave. But you know, you're sort of, we refer it out and you pay us our fee and you pay them their fee it is kind of separate from that. So I, I guess I'm just wondering, do, do you think of this as a more touch points, more comprehensive relationship, like stickiness kind of thing? Is this simply a, hey, just we're giving you the advice and we want to make sure you actually do something with it. So we're just sending you to someone to do, do something with it because you should do something with it. Like, 
how, how do you think about where this fits into the business? So I think it, it, it comes back to the type of firm that I'm trying to build, right? Like I've just decided that for me, and maybe this, we talk about this if it's useful to go back to my like previous career, but I want to be the person on the ground. I like doing the planning itself. I like talking to the clients. I do not want to spend my time managing other adults, doing all the things of running a business that are not being a financial advisor. So I'm thinking of a good friend of mine who's he's about 30 years older than me, who's a CPA. And I've talked to him a ton and I talked to him a ton when I was first getting off the ground and he actually gave me free office space in my first year, which is so generous. And I remember him telling me that, you know, he started a firm and it was all by himself and he loved it and he was doing taxes all the time and he loved doing taxes. And then he took on a partner and then they were doing some more taxes, but he was also doing some like, you know, types of work he clients he wouldn't have said yes to. And then mm -hmm. a couple of decades go by and they've got seven employees and they're doing corporate retirement plans. And he spends all day doing everything except for talking to clients and doing taxes, which is the two things that he actually likes to do. And he said he spent, you know, 25, 30 years getting to the place where he realized like, I'm actually taking home only slightly more pay than I was when I was a solo practice. And I'm doing all these tasks I don't want to do. Why am I doing this? And then he pared everything down. And now he's running a CPA practice all by himself again. And he loves it. And he's super happy. And he has total control over his own time. And I feel like I just, I watched that lesson and I'm trying really hard to learn the lessons of so many people around me. And I don't, I don't have to go learn the lessons myself. So if you're someone who wants to build a big firm, that is awesome. And I'm not, you know, great. Like that's, I'm happy for you. I am not personally someone who wants to do that. And so if I'm going to build a small firm where I'm really focused on spending the vast majority of my time either doing financial planning or talking to clients about their finances, then I need to have other you know, providers to do some of the things that I cannot do because I'm not going to ever be big enough to, you know, I, I don't think a solo shop that also sells you your insurance, that also does your tax return, that also is a lawyer and does estate plans is a viable person. Like that's not an expert. That's just someone doing a lot of things probably poorly. And so I'd rather, because of the way that I've built my firm, be okay saying, this is a person who can take care of that need for you. Go to them. And I don't feel the need to get paid on every piece of this puzzle. And for you, it sounds like a lot of it drives from just, I give the value that I give. I know it's good value. I get paid enough for it that when I do it for the number of clients I want to do it for, the math adds up for me and the income I want to earn. And just doing any more than that requires getting larger in a way that I don't want to get larger for because then I have to manage people and do things that I don't want to do because I just like talking to my clients and giving them advice. I'm trying to not repeat the same mistakes that both I have made and others have made and that like I... I want to stay doing the job that I enjoy doing and I don't need to grow something larger and larger just because I know that, you know, the, in this industry, I could, I, I could grow it larger or I could serve more affluent clients in order to make more money. Like I know those things are possible, but I'm actually really happy serving the people that I serve and doing the work that I do with them. Even if I know I might be, you know, not, not maximizing every dollar of revenue available to me or growing and having something big to, you know, sell 30 years from now, I feel like it's okay to stay making sure that you spend the bulk of your day every day doing the thing that, that gets you up in the morning. And for me, that's like talking to people and making them feel like they're in a healthier financial place than they were before and that they're making progress towards their goals and they're making progress towards the life they want to live. Well, I'm starting to love it just gets down to like, you know what your income goals are and you've already figured out like 60 clients times your average fee gets you to your income. So like, yeah, we're there. Yeah, like Exactly. It's, we make this harder than it needs to be sometimes. Like, did the math, it's going to work fine. Exactly. It's going to work fine. And I think, you know, that's another thing I would say is, I was talked about this a little bit with my study group, that I, I don't want to, like, be the the quote-unquote poor financial planner. 
this one of my, <laughs> my study group members said, but you know, you and I had this interaction on, on Twitter where you, you posted a poll about, you know, what does it take to be financially successful as an advisor? And it was like, I want to say it was like 68% of people said you need to make $200,000 or more. And I, I'll do respect to the advisor community. Like that's a 90th percentile national income. Like to, to say that anyone that makes under $200,000 a year or 40, I pulled it up actually, 40% of people said you need to make $300,000 a year to be financially successful as an advisor. And I just think that is so wildly out of touch with like average Americans. You're now talking 90, 97th percentile of income or so. And I guess technically that I'm even thinking about that. Like usually income percentiles are like household, household. income. Yeah. So like we're not even into spouses and passive income and other other income sources that may be that may be supplementing this. Like we we were I, mean, I think you make a point that's like we live in a world where two-thirds of financial advisors says a single breadwinner has to earn the 90th percentile income in the country just to be deemed successful. Yeah. And that just to me feels so just out of touch with the lived reality of so, so many Americans. And like I, you know, I work with certainly a more affluent than the average client than the average American clientele. But, you know, I'm sure that there are probably advisors listening to this going like, what? You work with the couple in their 30s who makes $130,000 a year? Like, how can you make any money building a business and doing that? And yet, like I'm, I'm happy to share this if this is useful. Like I'm making what in my local area is a 90th percentile income according to the data that I can find for 2020. So like I'm quote not successful according to this this one Twitter poll and maybe I'm taking it too personally. And yet I have a 90th percentile income in my local region while also having control over my own time. And I'm doing it in a job that didn't require me to go spend years and years in school and take on hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. Well, and we saw even an extended version of this in the advisor well-being study that that we did last year that you know, when you just look at like advisor well-being relative to the revenue of the advisory firm, once you get firms that make more than about one and a half to two million dollars of revenue, well-being goes down as revenue rises, like very un huh. unequivocally blatantly. Advisor well-being goes down as revenue rises up to more than a, more than about one and a half to two million dollars. So basically like north of a 200 million AUM firm to put it in traditional terms. And we'd even found there's there's almost a perfect negative correlation between an advisor's well-being and, and self-worth and the affluence of their clients. So like the, the more affluent the clients you work with, the more income opportunity, except the more affluent the clients you work with, the worse you tend to feel about yourself. Like it's a it's a perfect negative line correlation. It's just right. Like if you work with people who are incredibly wealthy, there's a lot of income fees on the table. The problem is you spend all your time working with people who have sometimes rather phenomenally large amounts of wealth. And it's kind of hard not to feel down on yourself when you could be earning 90th percentile income and feel like you're a low earner. You know, if you're an advisor in an ultra, you know, a firm that serves ultra high net worth, you're probably doing just fine relative to the average American or not even just fine. You're probably in the 90th percentile of income yourself. But if you're only serving people in the 99th percentile of income, you can easily feel really down on yourself. That's actually, I feel like I could spend an hour thinking yeah. and talking about just that study and I want to read it. I mean, I think we've all seen those things, you know, like if you ask people, what does it take to be rich? It's it's pretty much 2X whatever the person who you asked has, mm -hmm. right? Whether they have 2 million, I need four. And if you ask someone at four, they need eight. And I feel like um, maybe I'm overcorrecting, but I feel like I just, you know, the, the trope of the person who, whatever they make, they need to make a dollar more is so burned into my head as like just a, a, a cautionary tale. 
And I feel like, you know, if you can, you can build a firm where you get to do a job that you really love and make a really good income while also helping people who are shut out largely by the industry as it exists today, like that's just a win all around as far as I'm concerned. Um, and I feel really lucky to have, you know, frankly kind of stumbled into this, you know, I'm a career changer and had I not gotten lucky enough to have been referred to Jude Boudreau to be my financial planner, like there's no way I'm sitting here today, but Jude, Jude sort of set me on this path when, when he was my financial planner. And so I just feel, feel lucky to have discovered this industry, but also to be doing it in a way that I feel like is, you know, maybe, maybe a little bit oddball or different, but, but works really well for me and my personality. So as you've now gone through this journey in building your firm, like what, what surprises you the most about what it takes to build a successful advisory firm? What's that? There's that quote about like, you'd be surprised about how little you can accomplish in a year and how much you can accomplish in a decade or some, something along those lines. I'm butchering yep. it. But I spent so much time that first year, year and a half. I mean, I can, I can actually remember about a year in. So this was like maybe December of 2017 or January of 2018. So I was about a year in and like kind of the, the fun and excitement of starting your own RIA had worn off. And I was like, you know, I had made a net revenue of $10,000 for all of 2017 as I, you know, started from zero clients, zero revenue. And I got like four no's in a row from four prospects. Like over the course of three days, I went from thinking like, oh, I'm going to double my firm's revenue to no, 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 no. And I just fell apart. Like, this is stupid. What am I doing? How can I do this? I like sent a panicked email to Meg Bartelt, who immediately called me and spent 30 minutes on the phone talking me down of how much perspective I was lacking in that moment. So thanks to Meg for, for doing that. But it was helpful to remember that like this is a process and it takes a while to build. But if you're able to get through those first couple of really lean years, like you can really, it's a beautiful thing to be able to build whatever, whatever it is that you want to build. You know, we have so much autonomy to build. You want to, you want to work with 30 really, really affluent people who each pay you $15,000 a year. You can do that. You want to work with 200 people and build a big team. You can do that. You want to work with like just a certain profession. You can do that. You want to work virtually so you can, you know, travel the globe all the time while continuing to work. You can do that. I mean, I guess just going through that really low point to now only, you know, three and a half years later from that really low point, realizing like it takes time to build it, but we have this opportunity in this business to have so much control over like what, what it is your, your life looks like while also having a really meaningful impact on your clients has been really, has been really cool. I know that was really like more internal focus than the business itself, but I do just think this business allows you the opportunity to sort of set up what it is that is your ideal life. And then to also help other people work to achieve theirs. And I just feel like that's, profoundly lucky to be able to to do that work. And so anything else that you know, like you know now that you wish you could go back and tell you 5 years ago when you were getting ready to launch an advisory firm and come to the industry? Yeah. One it takes time, you know, so 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 not to have panicked because I happened to get four nos in a row, it was probably just random chance that that happened and not to freak out, you know, don't don't get too high or too low as you go about the the process of building a firm and I I think I pinballed from elated to to distraught far too often in the first two years, I think is one thing. And I think too is like, there's a lot of really great people in this industry who are willing to give of their time and their expertise if you're willing to ask. And I just feel so lucky for so many people that have helped me along the way from people, you know, in my study group, I have a study group that I started with, you know, five years ago and we, we meet most weeks still. So like Kevin and, and Gretchen and Krista and Tyler, they're my Tuesday, 10 a.m., always are, always there talking each other through business highs and lows, personal highs and lows. And it's been really helpful. And then I also have a lot of other people who have been more, you know, one-time calls. I, I called so many people in those first couple of years just to say like, what do I do in this situation? How did you handle this? Is this normal? Am I crazy? Help me. And so many people said yes. And I just think like being willing to ask for help and being willing to seek out mentors and seek out 
peer groups that that are able to push you forward is something that I encourage anyone who's who's going down this road to do because there's a lot of people willing to give up their time and their energy and their thoughts and it it made me infinitely calmer but also better as an advisor and more focused on what it is I wanted to build as a firm because a lot of the stuff we've talked about today about building the solo firm you know I didn't necessarily have in my head five years ago that's come through these conversations with people who have helped me really focus on like what is it that you like to do in this business? What is it that you don't like to do? How do you want to spend your time? Go build that. And so I'm just feel really lucky to have found that community. And so when you talk about being in a, in a study group, like where does that come from for you? How did you bring it together for yourself? We're all uh, XYPN members who are launching around the same time, sort of in the end of 2016. And so we started uh, actually with Arlene Moss as a coach and we met a few times and then there was a group of, I believe, 10 of us at the time that, that had been meeting together and the five of us you know, kind of decided to keep going. And it's, it's had a couple of changes in who's, who's been able to come and people's lives look very different, right? Like some of those folks have decided to join up with other firms or have made career transitions, but there's this, this cohort of the five of us that still talks on a regular basis. And it's, you know, sometimes we have more structured things. We've done book clubs and studies, you know, we've read was the book Advice That Sticks, which was really helpful to read as a group and then try to implement in our client meetings and then come back and talk about like what worked and what didn't. And other times it's much more informal. It's more like, hey, this is what I'm struggling with and I just need to vent to people who get it. And thanks for hearing me out. And oh, that's a really great idea. Thank you. Or oh, that's actually really helpful for perspective to know that you're going through the same thing. So it's it's definitely oscillated from very structured at times to unstructured at other times, but just having the consistency of knowing there's like a group of people who who has seen that whole journey and who's like kind of we've all been on it together has been really grounding and has rooted me i definitely would encourage anyone who is starting to meet bi-weekly or weekly with the same group of people and like find your find your tribe find your people who you know will empathize with you but also like you know kick, kick you in the butt for lack of a better word when you need it so as someone who came into the industry as a career changer any other advice that you have for other career changers looking to, to make the switch and get started? So I will say, if you can find an RIA that, that meets all of your needs to work with before going out on your own, I think you should. That's my belief. So I had never worked in another RIA before launching my own. That's largely just like at the time, there, I knew I wanted to be in New Orleans and I knew I wanted to work fee-only. I was not willing to do some of the entry-level jobs that I know a lot of people have done, but I just I wasn't at that point in my life able to. And so like if there just like wasn't another route that seemed viable at the time in my situation. I think even now there's a lot more people who are fee-only and there's also a lot more virtual work being done. So it's probably a different landscape today than it was in 2016. But so if you are career changing, I do think if it is possible for you to spend some time working in an RAA, I think that would have shortened my learning curve in a lot of ways and helped me, you know, just, just have some pieces of the puzzle in place more, more than I did. But I also think like, if you're a person who is willing to learn and is willing to like iterate and figure things out, like going out on your own is not as insurmountable as I think some people make it out to be. Because going back to my previous point, like you get to build what you want. And so if you want to build a firm that serves 60 airline pilots, you get to go do that. And you, if you know something about airline pilots, then cool, you're going to have an in with them and you can figure out the money stuff. Because honestly, this is, in my opinion, like Yes, there's technical knowledge you need to know. Yes, you should know about tax and insurance and investing and those things, but it's really a people business. It's understanding like, how do I really listen to this person? How do I really understand what it is they're trying to accomplish, what the barriers are to getting there, and how I can help them to remove those barriers along the way? And how do I 
make sure I communicate my advice, whatever that advice is, in a way that is digestible and actionable and actually gets done. So I'm not just talking at them. And so it's it's much more of a people skill and a people business than it is a numbers business. And I think for those who have the people skills, you can learn the finance piece much more easily than, in my opinion, someone who has the finance skills can learn the the client communication and relationship piece. So as we wrap up, this is a a podcast about success. And and one of the themes that always comes up is just the word success means different things to different people. And so you're, you're building this firm that I think fits your definition of success really well with even clarity of like who you want to serve and the revenue they need to generate, how many clients it is and, and making sure that wraps up. So I understand the, the vision for the success of the business, but how do you define success for yourself at this point? Not really my brand, but I'm going to, there's this Japanese concept, I believe it's called Ikigai. And it's about like, you know, to find like true happiness and to be really fulfilled, finding work that achieves four things. And I feel like I've, I've accomplished them all. And I feel really lucky to be able to do that. So it's, it's the idea of having work you love that you're good at, that the world needs and that you can get paid for. And the intersection of those four is, is Ikigai is ikigai and i i feel like in terms of defining success like i here i am i'm 35 years old and have due to a you know a, a series of what i would call honestly a lot of luck of being introduced to jude who introduced me to the wider world of financial planning it happened to introduce me to the world that i f- would feel more comfortable with with you know we're looking you know sort of directly with clients and and working with some younger clients I feel so lucky to be able to do work that I love. Like I really like figuring out the pieces of the puzzle. I like figuring out, okay, well, if this piece moves here and this thing's happening with your student loans, it's going to impact this on the taxes. And so we're going to make sure to watch out for this thing down the line. Like I like that sort of puzzle piece. And I also like the fact that it also, you know, this goes to the next piece, like what the world needs. Like a lot of people are really intimidated by finance. A lot of people are really overwhelmed by aspects of their finance and particularly like couples and doing it together when you each come in with your own preconceived notions of what your finances are going to be. And so helping people sort through that. So it's something I enjoy doing and that the world needs and that I feel like I'm relatively good at, or at least good, good enough at, and that I can make a good income to do. I mean, like if, if that's not success, what is? Amen. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much, Ryan, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thanks, Michael. I really appreciate you asking me to come on. Absolutely. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.